Hi, and welcome to Authorised. My name's Kevin Hillier. This is the podcast where writers speak. And in the case this week, it's the third time we've spoken to this writer because he is very prolific and he does books on uh, on people that we, we all know and that we've all come to love over the years. We started out the Authorised podcast series uh, talking to this man about his book on George Young, uh, the founding member of the Easy Beats, uh, and of recent times, talked to him about uh, Behind Dark Eyes, the story of uh, of John English. And this time, one of the uh, the great iconic figures of Australian music is undoubtedly Bon Scott, and Jeff Apter has done a book about uh, Bon, the true story of the ACDC legend, Bad Boy Boogie, it's called. We'll get to Jeff in just a tick, but a reminder about our terrific podcast partners, CSCG. Uh, tax, superannuation, they're all little minefields for people like you and me, but uh, for the people at CSCG, they know what they're talking about. They have all the information you need. They're across all the changes that are constantly happening in all these areas, and they can help you. They care about uh, what happens with your financial situation. So give them a call and have a chat. Double nine seven four eight triple three. Double nine seven four eight triple three, or jump on the website, see the services they have to offer, the people that they are, who you'll be dealing with. It's all there, cscg.com. Let's talk about one of the remarkable figures of the Australian music industry whose music is as relevant today as it was the day it came out and the day he created it. The one and only Bon Scott and the man who's written the book about it is Jeff Apter. Kevin, how you doing? Good morning to you. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. I've been well, thanks. You know, lockdown, but um, the sun's shining. Let's talk about this book. I finished it last night. So, uh, again, you've done it again. It's, It's a bloody ripper. Look, I'm really lucky, you know, in a lot of ways that I managed to find myself in a situation to be able to write about such interesting people. I mean, last time we spoke was about John English. Yeah. Uh, we'd spoken about George Young in the past, you know, and, and Bond was just another one of these really, really interesting characters from a time and place, I think, in Australian musical and cultural history. We, we don't see those type of characters anymore, you know. Americans don't do so well <laughs> in the in the woke world in which we live. But um, you know, given that Bond was a product of the sixties and the seventies, he was I think he was the epitome of everything that was um that was kind of fun and exciting about Australia and Australian music at that time. Yeah, it wasn't terribly threatening. He's not he wasn't a terribly threatening human being. Uh, but yeah, you're right, he was a larrigan. He was and we, we embrace that in this country then. We we don't do it as much now, unfortunately, but and, and where it all started for him, it was like for so many others. I mean, coming off the boat virtually, like like you know the Youngs and the and the Englishes and everybody else had done before him, or he did. Before yeah, look, them. there's, a, there's a, definitely a book to be written about the ten pound pong scheme. Mm. And it's, uh, you know, its its impact on Australian musical history in particular. Yeah, you know, again, John English, we spoke about. He was a ten pound pong. George Young, all the Young family came over. Um, you know, I think it was about ten of the Youngs. So there was plenty of them, um, which led to. Easy Beats and ACDC, you know, Glenn Short, John yeah. Farnham, you know, the the Swan Brothers, you know, Jimmy and Jimmy Barnes and John Swan. It's amazing the amount of people that were, as a result of that scheme, that post-war scheme came out to Australia and established great music careers. So, yeah, it's um it's remarkable, and and then that's it's not restricted to music too. I mean, actors, politicians, yeah. you know, people have have made significant um, contributions to Australian society all seem to have come out of this. What at the time was seen as, I think, just a labour-generating scheme. Yeah. You know, we needed some people to work here and it turned out to be so much more. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a massive cultural injection into the country in many ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, on his family landed, I think the first point of call was Sunshine in, in suburban Melbourne and then they ended up in Frio, in Fremantle. Yeah. Um, 
which was a bit different for most people. Most people stayed on the East Coast. Certainly the, the people that I've written about, Sydney or Melbourne, they gravitated to. But uh, Bond ended up in Fremantle, where in the town square today sits a statue of Bond. So, you know, he's certainly seen as one of their favourite sons. The last time we spoke, you, you said flippantly, you know, you haven't, you're not a real rock and roll writer in this country until you've done something on Bon Scott. You've now done something <laughs> on Bon Scott. I, I said it for a reason. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's almost like a dare, I think, with Australian music writers of a certain generation. Have you written a Bon Scott book yet? Come on, what are you doing? Yeah, there's been so much written about him. What, what, what were you hoping to kind of uh, uncover and what did you want to get people to get out of your, your story about him? Yeah, look, it was a very conscious thing because... Mm, of late, there tends to be a lot of focus on how Bond died. You know, there seems to be a certain kind of darkness that's attached to, to the end of Bond's life that people seem to talk about, perhaps to my taste, a little bit more than the music and, and what he created himself. So, I, and all the people that I've worked, I've been lucky enough to work with uh, Mark Evans, for instance, who was ACDC's yeah. first bassist. And, Michael Browning, who was their manager, you know, I've worked as ghostwriters with these people, and, and a lot of other people who I've spoken to always said to me, the bond that's sort of presented as this public figure, if you like, the way he's presented, isn't the bond that we knew. And I thought, that's really interesting. They said, you know, he was a funny guy. He was American. He was, it was much more than, you know, this sort of tragic figure that we think about who died in fairly sordid circumstances in a, you know, in a car, drunk in a London back street. It's what he did while he was alive was much more interesting to me than how he died. I mean, I, I only briefly talk about his end in the book because to me, I was much more interested and uh, engrossed by what he achieved and how he went about the 33 years that he was around. You know, that to me is much more important. Interestingly, the other day I got an email from someone who just read my George Young book and they said to me, what I really loved about the book was that you spent 99.5% of your time talking about what he did while he was alive yeah, and just, you know, just a few sentences about his death. And that to me really uh, confirmed, I guess, what I feel that readers want to hear yeah. and want to learn about. They want to learn about what this guy, why are we talking about him in the first place, you know? Yeah. And uh, that was an important thing with Bond. And just just to present that larrikin side of him, I think that was really important for me to get across. And oh, I, got access, I got access to some great letters that really made that point clear about how funny he was and, and quite an articulate guy too. You know, he wrote a good letter, Bon. He didn't just write a good rock and roll lyric, but he was a great communicator. One of the amazing things about, for me, one of the revelations for me is that he was such a, a voracious letter writer because yeah, it's yeah. it's not something, it, the modern vernacular, no one does it. You mentioned an email just then, that's the, that's our form of communication. But to actually sit down and write letters, uh, you know, to the girl at Albert's, to uh, a girl he used to go out with, uh, to, you know, to to everyone. He was writing letters to everyone on the road. It was like his postcard uh, to, to, to his whole life. Yeah, it was. He was a pretty loyal friend, I think, Bon. Um, yeah. You know, he he married briefly. He wasn't great domestic material, but he maintained a re- he maintained a really strong relationship with his ex wife Irene Thornton throughout their lives. She was one of the many people that he wrote to constantly, and his letters were funny. They were full of life. You know, they were full of really funny and and astute observations. It was not these hey look how fantastically successful I've become. It was more like. How are you doing? What are you doing? What's going on in your life? Can't wait to get back home at Christmas, you know. And just little things like his his Christmas cards would always be signed Jingle Balls. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. just classic Bon Scott, you know. 
And so, yeah, it showed it. And I, again, going back to what I wanted to achieve with the book was show that side of him, you know, yeah. that he was this, this law friend who was a, a really uh, very committed to the people that mattered in his life. There's a very funny story. Well, because he, at the last five years, from about 1975 onwards with ACDC, was pretty much spent in motion, most of it overseas. And all of Bond's friends and family were back in Australia. Albert's in Sydney, Albert's music was ACDC HQ. It's who's it's their record label. It was really where they were based and where a lot of their loyal um, business people were, were located. And um, overseas, uh, ACDC was signed to Atlantic Records. So whenever Bond was in a situation in a city where there was an Atlantic Records office, he'd go in, say, hey, I'm Bond from ACDC, find an empty office, and get on the phone and ring Sydney. And he'd ring Alberts in Sydney and get on the phone and talk to everybody that he wanted to catch up. And I thought, you know, there's that cheeky element of, you know, taking advantage. And remember, in 1975, 76, an international phone call wasn't cheap. But he'd kind of sneak in and he'd probably pull it off, you know, with a wink and a a kind of, you know, a a sly grin and people would just say, oh, this is such a charismatic guy. Let him do what he wants. So, yeah, he, he was a very good friend. I think a very loyal friend. Yeah, and that certainly comes through. The, the other thing that, uh, just on the letter writing thing, uh, um, the fact that he was a postie in Frio for a little while <laughs> is, is sort of the, an ironic twist in there somewhere, I think, as well. Because uh, he did have, yeah, he look, did have some weird jobs uh, along the way to, to pay the bills. He did, he did. Posted in one of them. Look, I've got no um, basis, nothing to base this on apart from my own suspicion, but I don't think sticking to the root would have been Bond's greatest strength. But he was a crave fisherman. You know, I I once did an interview with Angus Young, and Angus said to me, Oh, Bon, you know, he used to swim with the sharks. And I thought he was talking metaphorically, because, you know, we all know that Bon flew a little too close to the sun more more than once. He was talking literally. You know, Bon used to, this is when he was living in Fremantle, used to jump off the side of these crave fishing boats and literally swim among sharks to do his job. He was. You know, very kind of, I wouldn't say reckless, but there was a kind of cavalier quality to him, you know, these things that he would do, which continued when, you know, he suddenly found the band that really mattered to him, which was ACDC and the the ever-present kind of image of Bond, you know, chest on full and proud display and swaggering around the stage, you know, that was probably an extension of the days he used to swim with it. He was swimming with different kind yeah, of sharks. Yeah, exactly. is the best way to put it. <laughs> See, I'm old enough to remember and, and got up on, and watched Uptight on a Saturday and, and saw sure. saw him in the Valentines. And the, the bond that was in the Valentines and the bond that was in ACDC, I, I in the early days, had a real problem kind of working out. That, that's the same bloke because the puffy <laughs> shirts and the, and, the, and the dreadful, let's be honest, the really sugary uh, chewing gum pop that they did at that stage, uh, My Old Man's a Groovy Old Man and Knick Knack Paddywhack mm. and some of the songs that the Valentines did. Uh, coming to terms with Bond in, in the ACDC Bond days was uh, used to do my head in. Yeah, well, look, it was a blessing the TV was only in black and white back then, <laughs> Kevin, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think Because right. they wore these, the Valentines wore these shocking red satin matching outfits, you know, and Bond's hair looked as though it had been cut with a I don't know, a Bowie knife or something, you know, with a pudding bowl put on top of his head. Look, I think it was a case of Bon, you know, he wanted to like in music. He started in the mid-60s, you know, as we said, he tried out a few regular jobs and they certainly didn't suit him. He was a huge music fan, wanted to be a singer. It was a case of finding the right band or 
in the case of ACDC, the right band finding him. Yeah. You know, they sort of collided in Adelaide in what's on his 74, and that's when it all began. But yeah, the Valentines was, was a, a bubblegum pop band. But as I talk about in the book, what happened on stage and on record with the Valentines? What was going on back at Valentine's HQ in Melbourne was vastly different and a lot more X rated than this band. Uh, you know, it was a pretty wild time. It was, a, but also a really interesting time in Australian music. You know, bands like the Zoots and the Masters Apprentices, and, uh, and 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 more serious bands like Doug Parkinson's In Focus, and you know, all these groups coming through, and the Twilights. You know, it was a great live um, circuit that was starting to develop, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney at that time. Yeah, it was. The Valentines, I guess, the, at best, the Valentines were junior players. You know, they um they had a couple of minor hits. Um, one of the biggest claims to fame was that they were the first Australian pop band to be busted for marijuana. You know, I'm not sure. And Von wore that like a badge of honour. Yes. Yeah, yet, funnily enough, uh, and just to kind of jump to the end when you, you mentioned drugs, mm. the, the whole the, that whole aura about uh, how he died, and I love the way you've done it in the book that you don't spend 17 chapters on his death. He was never a drug taker. Drugs was something that was, apart from, I mean, he smoked a bit of dope, but never a drug taker as such. Yeah, yeah, and it's strange that these rumours have started to circulate that you know, that somehow contributed to his demise. He was a big drinker, big oh, boozer, um, you know, yeah, and a pot smoker, but it was just lifestyle caught up with him. It's it's a really unfortunate, I think, that he's somehow been associated. I mean, sure, he moved in circles where people would have done heavy, hard drugs, no doubt about it. I mean, he was on that international rock circuit for the last five years of his life, and there was a lot going on, but somehow for him to be connected with that... and a lot of his friends here who I spoke to or helped me with the book were really very upset by that. You know, this guy's not around to defend his legacy. Mm. And his legacy was somehow being tarnished by this association. And it seemed to me really unfair and very unjust. Yeah, you know. Right. Um, so, you know, I made a point of A, not dwelling on it, and B, what I did mention in the book was an attempt to redress that balance. Um, which is just a reflection, like I say, of a lot of people who were close to him, how they, how they reacted when these rumours started to circulate. You know, they were very, very offended and really wanted to defend his legacy, which I thought was a pretty noble thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the good thing, as I mentioned about the book, is you know you talk about the Valentines and his early days there. Then he moved on to, I guess, a more serious band in fraternity, uh, sort of up in the Adelaide Hills and uh, you're doing all sorts of different different kind of music to, to the Valentines completely. The Valentines, as you say, mm. were a bubblegum band and fraternity were a very, very serious bunch of musos. Yeah, they were. I mean, they were heavily inspired by the band, who was, you know, yeah. Bob Dylan's, um, Bob Dylan's not, not just backing band, but, you know, Bob Dylan's peers, I guess, in the, the late 60s and early 70s. You know, they had that thing in Woodstock where they had this kind of communal existence and the, the fraternity wanted to replicate that. They were very serious. They, they'd even cover band songs in their sets, you know, and uh, there's footage of them on GTK um, playing The Shape I'm In, which is a band song, and yep. Bon looking dreadfully serious. Can't recall if he played the recorder on that one, but um, <laughs> that was that was his weapon of choice yes. while with the band. Look, it was, again, it was a, it was a, Bon was a square tag. He was a rocker. He was looking for, you know, the band that was ACDC, but this opportunity came up and Fraternity were well supported. They had a manager who was cashed up who said, I'm going to back you for three years, put you on a wage, set you up in the Adelaide Hills. And even they got to the, they won Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds, which, you know, was a bit of a rite of passage for any um, ambitious band at that time. 
ended up in the UK and, you know, it just didn't work for them. Um, there's a story of them uh, opening for status quo and, uh, you know, status quo turning up by that time who'd had some big hits, um, turning up in these, these, you know, flash cars dressed to the nines, very Carnaby Street. And they're thinking, excuse the expression, but they're thinking, you know, who are these poofs? And uh, then 10 minutes later, status quo on stage in their denim and T-shirts, which was the look that they adopted, just rocking the hell out of things. And they thought, oh, we are so out of our depth here. Look, The whole fraternity thing in the UK is best summed up by the fact that they shipped over their Greyhound bus, which was, you know, perfectly adaptable to the, uh, the, the hills of Adelaide. But when it came to little London suburban back streets, like, you know, they'd, they'd know the band, the residents would know the band was in the neighbourhood because the driver would be doing another 38-point turn <laughs> trying to pass the thing, you know. Uh, so it, it was a disaster, and I think that's the best thing. The, the best way to sum it up was, you know, they <laughs> the idea is of Dan, you can just see this sad bunch of musos standing on a footpath saying, a little bit to the left. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Straighten it up. Try again. Try again. It's spinal tap. But, it's got spinal tap written all over it, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, the, you, you mentioned the, the kind of the collision of worlds and, and uh, the, the in finishing up in ACDC. It was, well, not not accident or happenstance, but it, it, just, it was just meant to be, obviously. Yeah, yeah. There was a fair bit of fate involved. ACDC had an, uh, another lead singer, a guy called Dave Evans, who was a bit, a bit more... Um, a bit glammy, I guess, is the yeah. best way to describe it. You know, he wore those candy stripe numbers and um, he was far, much too tall for the band. I mean, that's the big <laughs> problem. <laughs> yes. You can't be over five foot two in ACDC. <laughs> um, and they came, they, they were playing around, you know, they built a reputation on the fact that they were George Young's younger brothers. You know, that carried a lot of weight in the Australian music scene at the time. But they came to Adelaide and they were pretty much broken down back didn't have a proper manager and uh, things were falling apart. And Bon, at that time, had had this terrible bike accident that almost killed him. And um, he was recovering. While he was recovering, he was working in a, an agency, a tour promoter um, in Adelaide with his old mate from the Valentine's. It's in Club Grove. Yeah. yeah. And doing odd jobs, you know, driving vans around town, putting up posters. And he saw ACDC and the legend has it that, um, you know, he's finally, oh, my God, is this rocking band that I've always wanted to play with. And, you know, one night at a jam session somewhere, he went up to Angus and Malcolm and he said, you know, you guys are great and I'm a lot better singer than that drongo you've got at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he said he'd be their driver, he'd be their drummer, he wanted to do anything just to get involved with that band. But as soon as he stepped out the front and did, you know, what I refer to as the Angus and Bond show, once yeah. those two connected on stage, it was just magic. It was just meant to be. It was, it was fate, but Bond made very... Uh, Bond was very conscious of making it happen. You know, he certainly, once he saw them, he said, he identified that as the band that I could really do something great with. And, and that proved to be the case. And geez, they worked their bum off, didn't they? I mean, they were they were one of the hardest working. I mean, it's it's one of the great traditions of Australian rock and roll with bands like the Angels and the Tats and everybody, but they did work bloody hard. Yeah, well, these are all working class guys. You know, that's, the, you know, they're all coming out of, like I said, the 10 pound POM scheme. Their family, they're, typically their parents are labourers or work, you know, really hard grind to provide for big families. So it's not out of their nature. It's not. It's in their nature to work hard. And you know, the the ACDC weekly worksheet would probably include ten gigs, um, 
might be shooting a video, might be in the studio with Bander and Young, you know, probably traveling thousands and thousands of kilometers. It was, it was relentless and, and they just ate it up. They were just suited, so suited for it because frankly, none of them had a plan B. It was, you know, if ACDC fell apart, none of the guys in that band had any idea what they were going to do next. So in a lot of ways, they had to make it work. Um, and that, that hard grind paid off. I mean, what are they worth now? Hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's an empire. It really is. Yeah. Yeah, one of the final bits in the book is, you know, 18 months after Bond died, they were the biggest rock and roll band in the world. Uh, uh, do you have yeah, any, da- any, any doubt in your mind that they would have been that had Bond lived as well? I think they would have been a better band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not a huge fan of Brian Johnson. I think, you know, he doesn't have any of the lyrical uh, nous and, and, and sense of humour that Bond had, um, and I don't think he has the same kind of swagger on stage. Look, I think Back in Black would have happened. In a lot of ways, it was, even despite Bond not being there to sing or write lyrics on the album, he sort of was there as this spiritual sense anyway. He was, you know, I think everything that he'd achieved with the band sort of culminated in Back in Black, even though he didn't contribute to it. It it was a natural extension of what they were doing with Power Age and Highway to Hell and all these great records that, that Bond was involved in. So, I think it would have happened anyway and possibly been even bigger because Bond, like I say, I just think was a, a much better front man than the guy that replaced him. And, yeah. and interesting to note that, you know, when they get back together, when they do get back on the road, which is bound to happen in the next year or so, they'll be playing probably 50% Bond Scott songs. Yeah. You know, that's really telling to me is that the stuff that he wrote with them, you know, Highway to Hell, Long Way to the Top, Dirty Deeds, you know, High Voltage, all these great songs. They're still stayers and they're still huge fan favourites, even though a lot of their audience didn't realise some other blokes sang them. Yeah, you know? yeah that's, that's a really good point. And there's a lot of fact or fiction about Bond and some of the things uh, that, that he did. The the swan dive off the uh, off the top of the house into the pool, which is uh, one of the best scenes in Almost Famous, that movie that uh, that was done a few years back with... Um, uh, well, I can't think of you. So Billy Crudup in it as the, yeah, as the, right. as the star. Uh, Bond actually did do that. He actually did he the did. swan dive. I have a very sober witness to, uh, who substantiated it for me. Yeah, look, there was some other funny stuff. Some of the good stuff in the book was related by fellow musicians, like the, the poor guy from All 55 who got electrocuted. Oh, Jimmy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Bon offered him a drink of Johnny Walker as, you know, sort of resuscitation. And when he got to the hospital afterwards, they said, uh, can you tell Mr. Scott to stick to rock and roll? He's no doctor, you know. <laughs> yeah. Look, a lot of crazy stuff went on on the road and, and, you know, behind the scenes as well. But, you know, I, I just, I think in some ways, people see think, to think of Bond as just that, you know, yeah. this macho, hairy-chested, swaggering, sexy rock and roll guy. And, and he was that. But as far as I'm concerned, there were so many sides to the guy that he defied geometry. You know, he really was a very complicated and, and, and pretty complex guy for someone who presented everything in a very simple and straightforward manner. Yeah. You know, really interesting guy to write about. And, and uh, you know, little tiny weeny things like running around backstage looking for a chair for whom Kovacs's uh, partner or, or wife, I think it was at the time, um, to, yeah. to make sure she had a seat. To, that, that's the Bon Scott that no one kind of has ever heard about before. I couldn't imagine Axel Rose doing it. Could you, Kevin? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> He'd be hitting someone in the head with the chair, probably. Yeah, exactly. And, and you mentioned the, the, the songs that he wrote, 
uh, have have stood the test of time amazingly well. I mean, there's still every bit as good of songs uh, to listen to on the radio and to, and to to have as part of your life as they as they were the day they came yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote the Australian rock jukebox. You oh, know, he yeah. really did. You know, with the help, of course, of Vander and Young. You know, driving as uh, their studio guys and their mentors. You know, it was it's timeless stuff, and and so much of it is about not just not only his lyrics, which were fantastic, but just the way that he sang and sort of. He felt as though he'd lived those lyrics, particularly Long Way to the Top and Highway to Hell. Oh, you yeah. hear those songs and you go, I know that everything he's singing in these songs is cut from real life experience, you know, for better or worse. What is, you know, uh, getting robbed, getting stoned, getting beat up, broken boned. I mean, they're great, great pieces of writing, you know, lyric writing. It's yeah. precise, it's really vivid, and it really summed up what Bond had been through to get to that point. So, yeah, yeah, he's... um. You know, I think one of our great lyricists is probably one of Rock's great lyricists. Yeah, I agree. A poet, a provocateur, and a piss taker. I think someone <laughs> someone said it. Anyway, that kind of that, that sums it up for me. That's the that's the best uh, summation of him that I can think of. Yeah, look, and, and just with the book, we put a lot of effort into finding the right cover shot for this book. Oh yeah, and I think the one that we have is absolutely spot on. He's yeah, got great. he's got his new chompers because he did have a bit of a, a an issue back in the UK where. Um, he had to have his teeth replaced, um, which I go into in the book. Yep. He's got a sly grin. He's penning an autograph for someone, which has probably got some racy comment or his phone number attached to it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and he's getting away with it. You know, <laughs> he's just got that cheeky grin that basically says, hey, I'm Bond Scott and you're not. What was it? The um, was it a grandmother in Melbourne whose phone number got harassed because of the phone number in the? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was in thirty two three six two four three six yeah. Yeah, look, funny things like that. Another really funny story which sums up Bond, as far as I'm concerned, is they were back in Australia. They'd been based in the UK for a while, and they were doing this, what they called the Giant Dose of Rock and Roll Tour, which is a very Bond Scott kind of title. Yeah. And touring around Australia, you know, not just playing the cities, but getting out into the rural centres as well. And going with the tour, you know, you go to the show and you buy the tour program. And in the tour program was a and a with each band member. You know, classic rock and roll kind of you know, tour program stuff. Bon had somehow um, hijacked uh, Mark Evans' Q&A and filled it in himself. And it caused a lot of uproar because I think the question was, um, if you had a lot of money, what would you do? And Mark's um, entry read, I'd like to, well, bleep uh, Britt Eklund. And, of course, (laughs) you know, kids brought this home from the tour and parents were in absolute uproar about it. How can you publish? How can you say such things? So, you know, and it was very clear to Mark that Bon had set him up. And one day they're on the tour bus and Bon says, hey, Mark, look, we, we better have a chat. And Mark's thinking, oh, good, he's finally coming clean. You know, he's going to apologize. And he sat down and he said, Mark, we need to talk about, you know, the tour program. And Mark thought, you know, this is good. You know, he's really owning up to it. And Bon looked at him and said, Mark, you have to understand, the girl's got feelings too, you know. <laughs> and then he just walked <laughs> He just uh, couldn't help himself. It does sum him up. It does sum him up beautifully. It does sum him up absolutely beautifully. Uh, and and in many ways, I mean, he died at thirty-three, which is way too young. But geez, uh, you know, the fight in the Finchley pub and the bike accident and all that—he was bloody lucky in some ways to make it to thirty-three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, Jeez. he took big bites. You know, no matter what he did, he took big bites. Whether it was roaring around town on his bike, and later yeah. on, I think he was riding a Harley. You know, and drinking too much, and um, getting <laughs> the situation in Finchley, which was. He returned to a. He was now with ACDC. Returned to a pub that he visited when he was in um, when he was in fraternity. 
and I think for a while had been pulling beers yeah. to make some money. Yeah. And he'd obviously upset someone because as soon as he returned to this pub several years down the line, someone glassed him. Yeah. <laughs> Basically broke his teeth, put him in hospital, and um, you know, ACDC's first big um, outlay when they got to the UK. Most bands go overseas and buy gear, you know, amps and guitars. In the case of ACDC, it was Bond's new teeth. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, he just, he, I guess you could say there was a fair bit of chaos around his world yeah. uh, that sort of followed him and, and some that he created himself. But he seemed to endure it, uh, somehow survive a lot of these scrapes, always with a story to relate, you yeah. know, and always with a sort of a wink and a leer and a grin and a, you know, let's get on with things. And yeah. as soon as he got on stage and grabbed the mic and hoisted Angus on his shoulders, everything was good in the world, you know. And I think I think what, the best way to sum him up is what he squeezed into his 33 years. Uh, most of us would dream about in, you know, 100 years, you know. So he, there's a lot of living went on and he took big bites and, um, and in the end, ultimately, just took one too many. Really, and that's that's the best way to sum it up. Uh, it's a very good book, Jeffrey. You've done a great job as uh, as always. Congratulations on it, mate. Uh, it was a thoroughly enjoyable and uh, enlightening read. Terrific. Thanks, Kevin. Look forward to the movie, huh? Who are we going to cast as Bond? Oh, gee whiz. <laughs> it'd be a tough job. I'll tell it? you what, it'd be a role, it'd be a role that an actor would love to do because there's so oh. many layers to it. It would be one you'd be going, oh, please, pick me, pick me. Yeah, pick me, yeah. exactly. And a great soundtrack too. Oh, absolutely. Um, what, so what are you working on now? I'm, I'm writing a book about Keith Urban. Oh. About, yeah, about 10 years ago I wrote a bio, the first bio of Keith, yep. at a point where he – Probably wasn't the public figure that he is now. I mean, he you know he married well, and a lot of people know him sort of as you know uh, Mr. Kidman. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot that he's achieved that we're probably not aware of here in Australia because so much of his success has been in America. You know, he's won as many Grammys as the Bee Gees and Olivia Newton-John. The wow. most, he, yeah, that. he's won four Grammys. He's won as many Grammys as any other Australian artist. He's sold millions of records. That's a huge draw card in the state. Yep. Um, so I wanted to, you know, hopefully write a book that, that sort of corrects that balance, you know, that imbalance that people will get to know him as much more than just um, part of a celebrity couple. And it's a really, again, it's crazy ride. He started off in Caboolture, for goodness sake. I was know. about to say Caboolture because that's where my brother lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, Keith's dad, you know, yeah. Keith's dad uh, worked at the local tip. Yep. You know? And now he's one of the, you know, highest paid celebrities, one of the biggest music drawers in America, who's, um, you know, every move is charted um, and who's become an incredibly, and still a very grounded guy. I don't think he, I think a lot of Caboolture State in Keith is the best way to put it. <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> yeah, the good part. Very, the good part yeah, of exactly. Yeah, there's not many, but uh, yeah, I'm sure, <laughs> sure they did. Oh, we look forward to that, mate. And once again, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, it's, it's always lovely to pick up a book with your name on it because we know we're going to get a good read. Oh, fantastic. I really appreciate that, Kevin. Well, thanks to Jeff, and I know if you're like me, you now have a an absolute craving to want to go and have a listen to a bit of uh, It's a Long Way to the Top or High Voltage or Dirty Deeds or uh, <laughs> even some of the, the more raunchy stuff that uh, that he did. Uh, what, a, what a legend, the Australian music industry, and what an indelible mark he's left. And a very good book, a very good read, some great stories in it. Highly recommend it. Jeff Apter, Bad Boy Boogie, the true story of ACDC legend Bon Scott. Thanks for, to Jeff for his time. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to support our podcast partners, CSCG.
We've all got uh, money questions we want answered. They have the answers. If they don't, they'll find out for you. They're the sort of people who uh, will go that extra mile for you. So give them a call. Double nine seven four eight triple three, or jump on the website, cscg.com.au. Till the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Enjoy a book. Not much else you can do these days, is there? So at least they haven't banned reading yet and you can still do it in lockdown. So enjoy a book and we'll talk again soon. <laughs>